here for our Sunday School Hour. Uh, Earl's going to come and uh, teach the, the next lesson in a series on Roman Catholicism. Thank you very much, Pastor. <clears throat> Before we get into it, let me just ask a question. Is there anyone here today you were not here last Sunday, or perhaps today is your first Sunday for this, this lesson? You weren't here last Sunday. Uh, we have some people, Pat, yeah, put your hands up in the air. We have some gentlemen coming by. We'll <coughs> excuse me, provide the second one. It should say at the top, authority, authority. If you want to take your Bibles and initially turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. Matthew, chapter 23. I've got a little bit of a cough and a little bit of that, so try to work through that. As the men are passing these out, I just want to say by introduction, where we kind of began last week, because uh, some of the people were not here last week, or maybe you're new this week, welcome. Uh, usually when we talk about the word cults, now we talk about demonism, demon possession, satanic things, that, that's the occult. But when we just talk about the word cult, C-U-L-T, to say it briefly, we're talking about a, a denomination, a group, an association, whatever you want to call it, who claim to be Christian who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but in reality, because of their leadership, their doctrine, what they believe, and so forth, the fact of the matter is, they're false. Christ talked about the idea of wolves in sheep's clothing. That would be a cult. The ones in our country, at least, that are most well-known, probably the most well-known, would be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Uh, I have a son who's a lawyer out in Salt Lake City, and uh, we've, I never used to go there because of the, the situation, but we've been there now, and of course that's the, uh, not the start of Mormonism, but really where it took hold. Brigham Young brought them uh, to Utah in 1847. Uh, their, their, quotes church, it's not a church, it's a cult started back in 1830. But anyway, they're probably the most well-known. Secondly would be a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, that describes exactly who they are not. Have you ever had uh, these folks come to your door? Yeah, stop by. They're in that area. So again, I'll just say this off the top. If they ever want to come into your home and pray with you or something like that, uh, do not do that. John in his epistles talked about uh, take no time do not get involved in any way, shape, or form with those people who did not bring the doctrine of Christ. So uh, Mormon missionaries will always say, well, you know, we're not here to argue, but maybe we could just have a, a prayer with you before we leave. You just have to say very politely, ain't happening. Um, so there you go. And also the Seventh-day Adventists. They're probably, how many of you have heard of the Seventh-day Adventists? Okay. They're probably lesser known. They've tried to modify some, but uh, they still have the false idea of, of mixing the church with Judaism. The covenant of going to synagogue on the Sabbath, that's Jewish. That's within the law. And that's not for the church. We come to church on the weekly anniversary of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And they had a belief, you know, it, it talks about there in the book of the Revelation, not Revelations, the Revelation. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, the book of the Revelations. The Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And there's not two of him. So if you've ever heard anybody say the Revelation of Jesus Christ, just politely say, why are you so ignorant? Okay. <laughs> and, and, and then share with them. Okay, like this. Pastor would be, you'd, you'd have a much more diplomatic approach, you know. Yes. yes, even yes is like, yes, okay, and he's like saying, this guy's on our live streaming, why am I allowing him up there? <laughs> All right, but seriously, we have to be at sometimes. Francis Schaeffer, a Christian philosopher, he left a liberal denomination, and a lot of people tried to persuade him not to do that, and they said, well, we always have to be willing to compromise for the sake of unity, and Francis Schaeffer answered back, no, Sometimes we have to be confronted for the sake of purity. All right, so that's who we are. And I'll try to be a little bit more diplomatic. Here's what most people don't realize. No, it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. No, it's not the Seventh-day Adventist. And no, it's not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The world's largest cult with over, I heard yesterday, it's up to 1.3 billion adherents around the globe, over 72 million in the United States of America, Roman Catholicism is the world's largest cult, claiming to be the one true holy Catholic apostolic church, and actually being just the opposite. They are not a church at all. Ecclesia is a body of believers, and what they are taught and how they are trained is not to believe in Jesus Christ the way the Bible teaches. And therefore, when they get together and they go to their worship service, or they get together, they may call themselves the Roman Catholic Church, but actually, biblically, from our point of view, they're the Roman Catholic cult, which is sad. It gives me no joy. I was raised in this cult. Went to Roman Catholic. I was saved when I was 22. From first grade to twelfth grade, I was always in Roman Catholic parochial schools. I was an altar boy. I was way back in the day when we served the mass with the priest. I spoke in Latin, and uh, so I've, I'm not speaking theoretically, you know. And I, I had Catholic nuns and and priests in high school and everything, and they can be sweet people, but they are not biblical. I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 23. A week ago yesterday, last Saturday, I knew that my son, my oldest boy Evan, was going to be in St. Louis, Missouri. He went there with some of his children for, to a sporting event. And uh, all of a sudden, our phone rings, and it's Evan. And uh, my wife picked it up, and he says, uh, Mom, go get Dad. And so I came there, and he has his phone camera. And he says, Dad, look at this. So I'm looking in there, and he's walking through what is obviously a huge, beautiful, ornate church. So I said, uh, Evan, you're in St. Louis, right? <clears throat> and I said, I don't think that's your local independent fundamental Baptist church. <laughs> so I said, where, where are you? <clears throat> Excuse me, a little bit of this. He says, Dad, I'm in this place called the Basilica Cathedral of St. Louis. And it was, as he was walking around, drop dead gorgeous. I mean, nothing spared, gold, mosaic, I mean, the, the whole, the whole thing. 
So he's talking about it, and he says, Dad, explain some of this stuff to me. He said, you were raised Catholic. So I said, okay. So I said, you'll notice that uh, where, the, where the benches or the pews are at, they're like wood. And in a Catholic church, man, they've changed, but there, there'd be a railing here. And then everything up here where the altar is at and everything, it's all gold, precious marble, and everything like this. And this is the old idea. Roman Catholic theology is Old Testament theology. It's the idea that there's the people, there's the priesthood, there's the separation. This turns Levitical. And if you go into it to the Ark of the Covenant or where the altar's at, then you turn into what is known as, uh, you know, the uh, Arianic priesthood. And they have a priesthood. It's funny because the Roman Catholic priesthood, if you ask what kind of a priesthood is it, they say, what's well, my kids a dickin? And I'm just like, is anybody home? How many people were members of the Melchizedekan priesthood. Can anybody tell me? One. And what's the name of that one priest of the Melchizedekan priesthood? Jesus Christ. Yeah, he was the only one. And so everything, there's the Old Testament. And I was explaining that to him. And then I says, look around for the candles. Candles, yeah. And I says, go look, you just walk around in there and you'll, bun you'll be a bunch of candles. And he said, oh yeah, here they are over here. And I says, go over there. I said, uh, do you think they got candles in there in case they haven't paid their light bill? No. I said, what that is all about is the Roman Catholic belief that you can pray for the dead. And that if you're not good enough to go to heaven, but you're not really evil enough or bad enough to go to hell, you go to this place called purgatory, where you have to expiate or kind of be cleansed to the point by the purging fires of purgatory, so that when you're clean enough in God's eyes, then you can be released from purgatory and go to heaven. Now, what book of the Bible is that found in? None. There's a reference to it in an apocryphal book in the Roman Catholic Bible. They have seven more books than we do. But even the reference in their apocryphal book does not say anything about being released from a place called purgatory. As a matter of fact, a uh, pastor, I think you were talking uh, about, about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and he was trying to earn his way to heaven. And what really got him angry, because they needed money to build this big, huge basilica in Rome, which is the present St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. And there was this, this monk, this person, emissary of Rome, by the name of Johann Tetzel, and he was going around, and he was getting these people who were really poor, didn't have much money, to put money into this box. And he said, when the coin goes in the box, and you hear the coin clink on the box, your relative, your loved one, will be released from purgatory. And Martin Luther said, that's too far. That's too far. Yes, sir. Indulgences, absolutely. That's what these candles are about. Yes, sir. Now, the interesting thing about that was that they were in cahoots with the local governments, that they would give kickbacks to the local princes and people like that for allowing them to come in and solicit for money. And here's your share. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the whole thing, just like with the Mormons, and someone has said it, it's true. If you want to more closely now, Religiously, spiritually, theologically, it's a cult. But it also operates very much as a church. 
probably the two most wealthy churches in the world would be the Roman Catholic Church and the Mormons because they're more run uh, like businesses. Now, finally then, before we go to this, because we've got to get scooting here in this area, he says, what do you think about this, Dad? He says, what's your thought? And I said, very simply, if you're in Matthew chapter 23, go down to verse 27 and 28. I will read these. After I became a believer, I had never read the scripture before. Rome tells its people not to read the Bible. In the more modern days, they have some Roman Catholic Bible studies, but it always has to make sure that they're taught according to the rules and the doctrine of uh, the Pope and the Roman Magisterium. But I said, Evan, here's what it is. Such a beautiful, beautiful building. To the external eye, there's nothing to match it. Verse 27, Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye like are like unto whitened sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So what we have here in the list, and I'd like to hear from you folks, what we're going to do here is uh, last week we looked at the idea of the error of the core of the Roman Catholic Mass, the doctrine of transubstantiation where the, the, the bread and the wine would become the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and we dealt with that. Today we're talking about authority, and again, why authority will show us that the authority of the Roman Catholic Church makes it a cult. So I'm going to be sharing just some thoughts on the left-hand side from the, uh, this is the official Roman Catholic Catechism, little handy-dandy book. Uh, this was published, interestingly enough, by Pope John Paul II back in 1994. And in this, uh, this, is, this is what the Roman Catholic Church believes. Just to give you something recently in the news, I said last week, in here, under his pontificate, he said that what we would call, uh, you know, different gender weddings, blessings, uh, same, same couple, same gender blessings, would not be allowed in any way, shape, or form in the church. That it was, it was just, it was an unholy thing. And therefore, Holy Mother Church would never approve of it. The guy who's there now, Pope Francis I, is the Pope who took it on himself as a responsibility to have Pope John Paul II canonized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. So this Pope now canonized the man who said what couldn't be done, and now he, Francis, has said, it's time for our church to bless these unions. Hypocrisy with a capital H it's kind of like in the beginning of Moby Dick, call me Ishmael. If you want to know about Roman Catholicism, call me cult, because they are. All right, with the time that remains, Pastor, you'll probably have to go a little later because I'm going to go to 11 o'clock, okay? <laughs> he says, no, you're not. On the left, Roman Catholic position on authority. Now, if you've never heard this before, we're going to kind of say it. We have one authority. Can, can somebody tell me? 
in our theology. What is our sole authority? Just say it. The Bible. Yeah, hold up that Bible. You got it there? That's right. We bring this to our church services because this is our only authority. It is the living word of God. The church does not tell the Bible what to teach. The Bible tells the church what to teach. Romanism has this backwards. We're not, Romanism says it is the mother, uh, it brought the Bible about. Just backwards. Just backwards. No, God the Holy Spirit brought the Bible about. And, and when the council, the council of Hippo and the council of Carthage in the late 4th century uh, said this is the scripture, they weren't making it the scripture. They were just merely recognizing it was the scripture. So, three authorities then. Of course, the scripture, the pope or the magisterium, and something called sacred tradition. Now, on the right-hand side, as we go down through these five, I just put you know, a little passage there or something if anybody wants to read that or say that. But again, I'm opening it up because, as already with these two gentlemen here, I want to hear from God's people. So I will say this. Now, I'm going to go in here. Number one, revelation, which means the Bible. Revelation has been entrusted to the Catholic Church. Now, again, I'm just going to read this. Don't try to understand it. There's no understanding it. What I'm about to read, you couldn't find in the Bible. This is man-made, humanly inspired, uh, probably demonically inspired. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it's put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition also transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles, apostolic succession. Any church, any denomination, any association, any fellowship that is not in communion and in submission to the Pope and Holy Mother Church, then their, their pastors, their reverends, their whatever you say, who have received ordination, is not valid. It's out of order. See, for our pastor to be a true biblical pastor according to Rome, he would have had to have been ordained a priest and had his hands of a bishop laid upon him and ordained in the apostolic succession, starting with Peter, all the popes down through this pope, and through the magisterium of the cardinals, the bishops, and then the bishops in all the countries and all the dioceses of the church around the world, when you have men who have studied for the priesthood and they're to be ordained, if that were true of our pastor, and thank God you're a man of God, not a man of Rome. Amen to that? Man of the word. Not a, not a man of, of Romanism, but a man who preaches the word, our pastor. Praise God for you, sir. Uh, you have to be in there. Just read this. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the work. Do you hear that? Whether it is in written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority is this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted 
to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. They got the keys, they got the authority, anybody else doesn't. The nicest thing they would call us is separated brethren. But before Vatican II, the word was heretic. Yet this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. The divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devoutly, guard, devoutly guards in its dedication and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief has been divinely revealed is drawn from the single deposit of faith. The single deposit of faith is the Roman Catholic Church through the magisterium. Mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, he who hears you hears me. The faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. In brief then, it is clear therefore in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associate, associated that one of them cannot stand without the others. Working together, each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. Now there's a lot more in here, but we don't have time to do all that. What I just read, the first one, that revelation, the word of God, to understand it correctly, to teach it faithfully, of necessity must be under the control or the direction of the one true church. Let's say it again. The Pope, the College of Cardinals, the bishops, together this is the magisterium, down to the priests and the local churches, and that if anything is not within the sphere of that apostolic succession, it is not valid, it is out of order, and is therefore not really a church. They're the ones who are not really a church, but they're saying that everybody, anybody who's not with them is not the church. Now, I roll it back to you. Is there anybody you'd say, hey, uh, I got a verse that would maybe question that a little bit, or anybody just want to speak to this idea of what I just read? Anyone? Yes, sir. Isn't that interesting? You remember also, uh, Jesus talked about that one time with the Pharisees. He said, he said, it's not that you've brought your, your works or your customs or your rituals up to the level of the law. He says, you have put so much emphasis on your rituals and your rules that you've, you've risen it higher than the law. And just what you said, yeah, that is interesting, that even in the order of sequence, it's not, I opened this up, I might as well drink some. Yeah, that they, they put that first. Very good. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Justin. No. No. The, if you'd say, what is the journey to the papacy? Now, there is... Some of the popes, I mean, there's been, I don't know, 260, some of them down through the years. But, and some of them have talked about they've been on pilgrimages, 
either to Jerusalem or pilgrimages to Rome or something. Martin Luther talked about when he took a pilgrimage to Rome, you know, equating it as the holy city. But no, uh, there's nothing where if you'd say, you know, I'm just wondering if God would want me to be the Pope, so I better go to this school, or I better get involved in these activities, or I better be, no, it's, it's more you, they become a priest, and then through whatever the mechanism would be in the church, they're brought up to be a bishop of a diocese, and then a bishop maybe to an archbishop of a larger metropolitan area, and then finally it is the Pope himself who as he looks around the world, he would select them, because they're supposed to have a certain number of cardinals, those that uh, wear the, uh, the red, and they'll be brought in to, to be a cardinal. Uh, when the Pope passes away, or Benedict resigned, but usually when the Pope passes away, then this college of cardinals, who are of a certain age, will come to Rome, they'll be sealed in this room and everything, and they'll talk about, it's, it's kind of political, although they say it's very spiritual, but it's kind of political. There is within Rome now, I'll just say this and throw it in, there's liberal Rome and there's conservative Rome. And uh, the traditionalists right now, they hate this pope. If this pope right now would, would die today, the traditionalist Roman Catholics, they would be, they'd be thrilled. And back after Pope John Paul II died in 2005, when the progressives and the liberals were hoping for a progressive pope, and who walks out onto the balcony, Hava, you know, Papa, we have a pope, is, uh, uh, John, is uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of Germany, who turns out to be Pope Benedict XVI, and he's a conservative. And they're looking at him and they're like, oh no. So they want to say they're one holy Catholic apostolic church, but it's very political. So they get in there, and they'll talk and they'll take votes and everything. And you know that whole thing. Uh, they'll set up the black smoke. And then they'll finally send up the white smoke, and then it's like, you know, hooray, uh, we have a pope. And then what they'll do is everybody's wondering and everything, and there they'll open up the doors, and he will come out with his assistants, and then that's the first public demonstration of who the new pope is. So to answer your question, no. It's, it's, it's more political. It's going up through the ranks, and then they'll uh, pull Somebody else had their hand up. Did somebody else have their hand up? I thought I saw a hand up. All right. Oh, yes, Gary. Go back here. Yes, everything that you've said so far, everything that we understand about what has, has been going on, is going on uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, it, it just, it just uh, petrifies me to believe that that many people are going to be facing the consequences uh, that are spoken of in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. Okay. Adding to or subtracting from this prophecy. Oh, yes. This book. The warning is there. It's very plain. And it just, it just, if you think about the number of people who are being misled and destined to an eternity that they don't desire. Right, right. And it is said. <clears throat> And I don't say this lightly, it, it's the truth. If you, if you follow this church down through the, the centuries, they have never let the Bible get in their way. They never have. Ben, did you have a question? Or, yes? This was published in 94, yes. Not very often. Uh, 
they've had multiple catechisms for the church. Uh, this is the one I, I have, but this is not the first one. Usually uh, what has happened down through the centuries, and this goes with sacred tradition and we've got to move on, is as time has gone by, there have been additions to what the Catholic Church believes. And so when they come up with a, a new teaching, a new something that's never been there before, then it has to be incorporated into the next catechism. That's what it is. We do need to, to move along here right now. The, the second one here is about the apostolic succession. It began with Peter and the apostles, today with the Pope and the bishops. We, are, we already mentioned that, but I just want to uh, say it one more time. Uh, and then you think about anything that you would uh, be concerned. You'd say, well, here's what I'd like to respond to that. So I have to turn here. Just, just give me a second here. <clears throat> While I'm turning here, I will say something very quickly. The Roman Catholics will go back to the first pope being the Apostle Peter, and they have a list of all of them. I will tell you, historically, with the idea of papal power having civil power, was with the Roman Emperor Augustine. And in the year 325, there was the Council of Nicaea. It wasn't the Bishop of Rome, a man by the name of Sylvester. He's not the one who called the church, the bishops together to meet in Rome. It was the Emperor Constantine. It was the Emperor Constantine who, before in Rome, Christianity was uh, religia illicita. It was, you know, they didn't give a little bit of the incense to the Pope, I mean to the, the, uh, the Emperor. But he changed all that. After he won that battle where, you know, put the cross, Milburn Bridge and everything, after that, the Emperor Constantine made the church legal. And when the business people and everybody in Rome found out that the emperor liked Christianity, everybody wanted to get baptized. And you can imagine that. So the first pope actually historically would have been the emperor Constantine around the year 325. I've just not been able to get a Catholic priest to agree with me on that. Okay, I'm at 1086. I'm going to read this quickly. If I can get to it. All right. Accordingly, just as Christ has sent by the Father, so also he sent the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. Thus the risen Christ, by giving the Holy Spirit to the apostles, entrusted to them his power of sanctifying. Kind of the idea of anointing or the idea of, of laying on hands for ordination. They became sacramental signs of Christ. By the power of the same Holy Spirit, they entrusted this power to their successors. Apostolic succession structures the whole liturgical life of the church and is itself sacramental, handed on by the sacrament of holy orders. So I'd mentioned that before. I just wanted to mention it very quickly again. This is a big thing, a very big thing. That's why the only way uh, we have seen, I've heard stuff from the Granberries especially, there's this big movement here by many groups of evangelicals and Eastern Orthodox and everything, they want to reunite with Rome. Hear this. Rome does not want to reunite with them. Why would she? She's the one true. It's not that Rome has to seek them out for approval or, or vindication. No, it's these, all these churches, this church, 
any Christian group, any Christian local assembly that wants to be considered a true Christian. You and I must come to the point where we submit to the fact that the church that we left back in the 1600s, not necessarily the Baptist, but the Reformation, we were wrong, Rome was right, and we need to come back to Holy Mother Church with apostolic succession. Anybody want to make a comment on apostolic succession before we move on? Like I said, we're just, again, we fly over the treetops because these are, you could spend a lot of time on these, these things. Yes, Chris. <clears throat> no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say that only the clergy have the Holy Spirit, but they would say that the Holy Spirit leads in the magisterium through the clergy in a way that they must make the decisions. Uh, they must set the doctrine. They're the ones who are in ecclesiastical control. So that's, that would be the difference. They do not believe in what we call private interpretation. They are death against the idea that any of you out there, in this setting right here, only our pastor would have the right because of his ordination and the way God has worked with, through him. Now, he's trained, and he's been called of God, but he would tell us that none of us if, if he were a Roman priest, thank God he's not, but if he were, he would instruct us that none of us have the, uh, the proper authority to question anything that he would teach or anything that, that Rome would teach. In that sense, he's not infallible like the Pope is in the sense of ex cathedra, but he is the one who has been chosen by the Holy Spirit to do the leading, not the following. All right? So it's, it's much more like a hierarchical thing. We believe in private interpretation. Pastor's the leader, pastor's trained, pastor is the under-shepherd of our church. But as we get together the church, he understands that as born-again Christians, we all, at, at the level of the cross, it's level there, and as we learn from him, he's willing to listen to what we have to say because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Rome does not see it that way. I remember when I went to go see a priest after I was born again. They wanted me to go see uh, this father. And he was just, you know, just like, why do I have to talk with you, you know? <laughs> he had that way. All right, I've got to move on. Uh, church teaching and scripture resides in the bishop and the magisterium. A lot of these, I, 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 think, uh, I, I think that's kind of replicates what we've already kind of spoken about. Let's go to the idea of uh, church tradition. Natted says, you know, how the idea, uh, why do they put that on in, in so high? Uh, I would just like to read from another book here just for a moment. What do they mean by church tradition? Uh, in this book, Pastor has this book, and this is, if you want to get this, if you're interested in this topic, The Gospel According to Rome by James McCarthy, he's a former Catholic, and it is, it is excellent. All right. Uh, the Bible closed around the year 96. You know, the book of the Revelation, no more is added, like Gary pointed out. But there is in history, after the Apostle John would have passed away, 
there's a group of people, you can read their books if you want to, called the Post-Apostolic Fathers. These were, uh, you know, would have been leaders in Christianity, uh, some pastors, people like in the early years right after John died, people like Polycarp, Irenaeus. These would be before the year 300, so it's much more likely if you read these post-apostolic fathers, they're going to be biblical. But the post-apostolic fathers, or what they call the church fathers and the, uh, the church doctors, but more the church fathers, they go on to the 8th century. And by the time you get to a pope in the 400s by the name of Leo the Great, uh, it's just, now you've got so much of paganism and Rome and, and this tradition and everything like this, it's really Katie bar the door. It's, it's like it's, it's open. And that's why when we as believers, we hear about all these things they teach and they believe, it's sort of like, how in the world, where, why, how, you know? It's because of a lot of it is sacred t- tradition. Now, I'm going to read this to you here quickly. And they still have it going today. Now, they don't have the church fathers listed today. But things like the infallibility of the Pope, that was from uh, 1870 at the First Vatican Council. When they came to the idea of the, um, the, uh, the Immaculate Conception and other things about doctrines of Mary, the Assumption and all that, some of that stuff came along under Pius, Pope Pius in the 1950s. Okay? Relatively, uh, relatively, so... Like infallibility. Roman Catholicism teaches that God supernaturally protects the magisterium from teaching falsehood. The bishops do not err and cannot err when teaching doctrine related to faith and morals. They are said to possess the gift of infallibility. Roman Catholicism teaches that the gift of infallibility extends to the teaching of the Bishop of Rome in a special way. The First Vatican Council, 1869-1870. So when you think of the history of Christianity, that's relatively new. We teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma. Divinely revealed dogma? I thought Revelation ended. No. No, they've got these, uh, these teachers and the Pope as he's led. That when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is from the chair of Peter, from the bark of Peter, that is when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, woohoo, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or moral, morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. You say, well, where, where do we find that in the Bible? You don't. Speaking ex cathedra literally means speaking from the chair of authority. This means that when the Pope speaks as the supreme teacher of the church, Roman Catholicism holds that he does not and cannot teach false doctrine. For this reason, the dogmatic teaching of the Pope cannot be called into question. Wow. Wow. And when did they come up with this teaching? Was it, you know, back there in the times of Peter and Paul? And No. This was, this was figured out by... Who really wanted this was the Pope in Vatican City in 1870, Doug. Uh, question, how did they handle things looking back in retrospect and say, well, the Pope really screwed up about that? <laughs> well, they, well, for, well yeah. a very popular instance of that in, is you know, the Popes would throw people like Galileo in prison and torture him 
Well, one thing, and I'll say I'm not sure about this, that would be, remember, it's not that the Pope is infallible in all things. He's infallible when he says, I'm going to make a statement ex cathedra in that. Well, that was doctrine to the Catholic Church. It was the teaching of the Catholic It was a teaching. Now, the, again, this is where you, you can't understand this. It is a teaching of the Catholic Church, but if the Pope never addressed it as ex cathedra, that's a different thing. Now, I'll tell you one thing real quick. we got one or two more to go here. Uh, I want to tell you who some of these church fathers are, because I know you want to write them down and memorize, and memorize their names. Um, see, during my years as a Catholic, oh, you want to say something, Derek? does not change. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you brought, said that the way you did. I'm glad you seconded that. For, for instance, I'm on, that's okay because we're talking about this. Uh, we used to have a little statue of a guy we'd put in our car. He was the patron saint of travel, okay, and to watch over you while you were traveling. I can't even think of his name anymore, if anybody knows, but that was taken away, okay? That didn't matter anymore. It used to be, if you're a Roman Catholic, you know why fish is oiled, all these places offer fish at Lent, and especially on Friday, because remember the old rule, anybody about Roman Catholics, we didn't do what on Friday? Didn't eat meat on Friday. I mean, I, I remember Jesus saying that, that's the on the mount, you know? No, that was one of these things, slippery slidey. So they took that away, now that's no longer a thing. Lent, oh, the idea is, is that Jesus gave up so much of himself for us, that we show affection and love to him by giving up something too. Oh, don't forget to say the thing that you also think that will increase your chance by your own works to get you to heaven. That's what Lent's really all about. Another thing, it used to be that if a, a baby was born and died prior to being baptized, it could not go to heaven because baptismal regeneration, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. So that baby would go to a place called limbo. It didn't go to heaven, but it, was all, it would always be happy. Everything would be nice for that baby in limbo. All of a sudden, they dropped that doctrine. Again, it's, I always say it's like a, uh, this is a, well, I won't use that. Uh, I, let's just say they're very slippery. They are very slippery people. Did you have your hand? Yes. Is limbo different than purgatory? Yes, it is. Because the understanding is the baby it didn't do anything wrong. It's innocent. There, so, so it doesn't have to atone for anything. All right. Uh, just some of these people, some of these people, why it, it goes. The doctrine of uh, the biggest thing. I want to tell you this. The largest basilica or Roman Catholic Church in the United States of America is in Washington, D.C., it's the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, all right? Have you ever visited there? Anybody ever been there? 
Okay. Went in there, no, nothing, no expense. I've talked to Roman Catholics and probably a lot of people in here. Maybe I'll just, just close with this because we went through most of these looking at them. A lot of people think that the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is the teaching of the virgin birth of Christ. Would anybody in here think that? Or you say, isn't that what it is? Okay. Good for you if you're not fooled. You used to. Yeah. The Marian doctrine that came through within the last 200 years on the doctrine of, and you always hear about this, the Immaculate Conception. In my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana, the diocesan headquarters for the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, the cathedral downtown, where the bishop has his chair, is the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. Now, what's this understanding? The understanding is, is that, hey, Jesus is born the Son of God. He's sinless. He's perfect. He's God come in the flesh. So, how could you take Jesus and put it into the womb of a woman by the name of Mary if she's just a sinner? That would be almost like a desecration, like it would be a defilement to put Jesus in the womb of a sinner. Answer? Mary has her mother. Mary's mother's name is Anne. And according to Catholic teaching, is that when Anne and her husband work together, is that Anne conceived into her womb, the embryonic Mary, was an immaculate conception. Therefore, Mary, like Jesus, was sinless. Yeah, and if you want to read about that in our Bible, it's in the book of Imaginations. <laughs> and they always talked about how Mary went to heaven bodily like Christ. They call that the Feast of the Assumption, and I say it sure is. Yes, sir. Who? And if you're going to have one sinless person right. to give birth to another sinless person, this sinless person's there you go. also have to be sinless and so on and so on. That point has been brought up. Where, where do you draw that line? Where do you draw that line? So uh, the three-part authority, I'll, I would just close with this today because we've got about three or four minutes to go. I'll give you the last word. Is that the authority? Uh, they say that the scripture is their authority, but it's not really. Because so much of what they believe and teach, they put, as Nat said too, about what the, the, the ancient hypocrites, the Pharisees, they took their rules and their customs and their ideas and they raised them. You know, the whole idea of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. That's probably the prime example. You know, this man's a sinner, this, 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 and Jesus is such a, we don't, I don't know where you got that, but you didn't get that from me or the Heavenly Father or the Holy Spirit. That's a man-made thing. That's evil. That's wicked. And so much of Rome, what they teach today, just has nothing to do with the Scripture. They say that the Bible, and they've got seven books in there that shouldn't even be in there, the Apocrypha, they say it's the sacred Scripture. But no, they're more, actually, they are more involved in promoting man-made, I think, satanically found false doctrines, false things, just like the idea of uh, going to heaven, uh, I have a thing right here, a little bookmark. I got it at a Catholic church up in northern Michigan. Fifteen promises of Mary to Christians who recite the rosary. If you're a Catholic and you faithfully recite the rosary throughout your life, God promises to save you. That's a promise from God. 
praying the rosary. You better get busy. Uh, so there was all that. Anybody want a last word or a last thought about authority? Pastor. Oh, yes. And I think that seems to be porn is dangerous because once again, even though it's a priest who supposedly is explaining the Bible, it's dangerous because it's all funneled through human tradition, mm-hmm. not funneled through the priesthood of the believer and the scriptures being the final and the supreme authority. Thank you for that. And also on TV, I don't know if it's the same group or not, actor Mark Wahlberg. He'll get in there, and he's got this guy who plays the role of Jesus. I don't know if it's the same guy and everything, and, and, and they're going to pray, and of course the whole thing. And uh, it's, it's just, it's wrong. I'll close with what I said the last time, and we'll get back again this next week. Roman Catholicism, they don't just differ from us. No, they are an abomination. They are, they are a, a, an apostasy. They are full of blasphemy in what they teach. Pastor, turn it back over to you, sir.